Amen. Wow. Praise God. Praise God. Good morning. I've said this before, but I think I can go home now. Man. Thank you, team. Thank you, team. There couldn't be a better song to sing than, uh, than that one for the scripture passage we're going to read this morning. So let's just start out by doing that if we could. If you have a scripture with you, just uh, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Starting at verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. Now, we're at the end of this. Some of you would like it to be at the end, probably, but we're just getting started. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Now, listen to what Paul writes about the greatness of our God, specifically about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he may be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel for which you've heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So that's where we're going to land this morning as we continue to go through this series called Enough. Walking through the book of Colossians, if you weren't here last week, or even if you were, we asked this question last week, what is enough? What is enough? It's this idea of, of you know, this, this yearning in a lot of our hearts for we, we want to have enough, we want to be enough, you know, we, we want to, um, we, we talked about this bag and all of these things, this bag represented, it was filled with all of the things that seem to occupy our desire and our mind for enough, whether it's our, is our house nice enough, or is my job good enough, or am I good enough to get the promotion, am I good enough to get the girl or the guy, is, are my kids good enough? to graduate from high school, hopefully go either on to college or get a job so that they can get out of the house enough, right, uh, early enough? Am I, is my health good enough that I'll be able to make it for another year? Is, um, is my bank account good enough that I'll be able to retire, right? Is my post good enough that I'll get the likes that I want? I took 15 selfies. Hopefully it's right. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You know which better side of your face is the selfie side. Anyway, that's some of you, not everyone. But, you know, all of these things, literally, they, they can consume us. They can consume our need for enough. And they can leave us to a place where we definitely don't feel like we'll ever have enough. 
What's the definition of enough? I gave a definition last week of enough. It's simply the sufficient amount needed to satisfy a need or requirement. I find in a lot of us, that's what enough is. That's what this concern about enough is, is that we, we seek after all these things in this bag. We, we, we seek after all the things that we carry around with us because we need satisfaction. We're looking for something. We want to fill these holes in our lives or we want to, we want to worry. I, I don't know why, but these things in these bags keep us up all night. We're worrying about enough. Or, and, and, and so we just carry them around with us day in and day out, and yet we forget about the one who is enough, which is Jesus. And so last week I asked the question, to you what's filling your bag some of you walked out here wondering like what's filling your bag like what are the things in life that are consuming you as you pursue enough that are taking the place of you finding your satisfaction finding all that you need in Jesus because he is enough and we we walked out of the last last week we walked out here with a prayer from Paul that he gave us a prayer that told us that you know what God is the source of enough And we have the opportunity to pray to him and ask him to fill us with that. And so some of you, I know, have been thinking about what's in your bag and what needs to go in your bag. What needs to leave from your bag. Speaking of bags, I was wondering, um, who in your family is an expert at packing them? Maybe even more specific, who in your family is an expert at packing the car? Come on, some of, one of you is, right? Like, I consider myself an expert. Like, I am like the Tetris king. And I feel like it's a challenge every time we go on vacation. And it was really a challenge when the kids were small. Because when your kids are still in diapers, you basically have to bring the entire house with you. You know what I mean? And so it doesn't matter if they're, how big your car is, there's not a car big enough. Yeah, just you wait. There's not a car big enough for all the things you need. And I remember, like, especially those times, you know, I bring all the things out, and I'm standing there, and I'm packing, and I'm, I'm looking at the spatial size, and I'm doing everything perfectly. And Jessica, my wife, just continues to bring more and more out to me, like more and more. And just when I think I've got everything, and I'm standing back, checking out, you know, the beautiful work that I've done, she comes with more, you know? <laughs> and it's like, honey, I don't know if we're going to be able to fit it all in there. Like, do we have to take the kids right? Like, because it'd be so much easier. But it was just the dog, right? And then what I've realized then is, what I realized, what you've realized when you've been in this situation is really, it's not about like, if th- some things are important, some things aren't, because most of the things you need, but you have to prioritize, especially when it looks like it's getting too full. You have to prioritize, what do I need the most, and what needs to go in first? You have to arrange it properly in order to be able to prepare for the journey. And so last week we talked about these bags and we talked about the fact that, you know, we have to make room. To receive God's enough, we have to make room in our lives. And so we've got to clean things out from here. And I had someone ask me this week, they said, you know, uh, you really got me on that. I said, I didn't get you on anything. That's the Holy Spirit. But uh, they said, I was really struggling because, you know, I can't take all of the things that stress me out. I can't remove everything from here because some things are necessary. There's some things that just are necessary that I have to put priority to. I have to, you know, not necessarily worry about, but there are things that are really important in my life, and everything can't be cleared out of there for God. And I was like, you're right. You're right. But what's important, and where we're going to go today, I believe where Paul's going to help us go today, is that we have to arrange it properly. 
We have to make sure that we put first things first, even as we're filling our bag. We have to remove the things that are essential. We have to remove the things that aren't essential and make sure we focus on that which is essential. Now listen, if you took things out of the bag, if you were really stepping into where the Holy Spirit was leading you, and you realize that there are things that you're chasing for enough that need to say goodbye in your life, that's a big step. I want to recognize that this morning. If God convicted you on this this week and you are taking steps to remove things from your life, the Holy Spirit did that, and that's a big deal. But now what's left is the priority. And our priorities, even though they're priorities, they'll never be enough. But yet we can't remove them from our life. We have to arrange them properly. And what we can't do is we can't allow them just to continue to mix together into one jumbled mess. That's not how life works. That's not how it's going to work in a life with God. And, you know, the church in Colossae had this problem. I don't know if you remember from last week, I shared with you that the major problem in Colossae where Paul was writing this letter to was that they were confused. There was false teachers that were telling them that Jesus was not enough, that they had to do other things. They had to pursue other things. They had to pursue worship that may have been Jewish worship or worship that may have been pagan worship or or worship of angels or other philosophies. They were mixing all these things together and they were confused. They did not know that Jesus was enough in and of himself. And what ended up happening is that they did start to literally mix them together and to practice a little bit of everything, some of them. We know that from the context of the letter and what Paul said. So they were like treating God and paganism and, and, and Roman mythology and Judaism and Christianity, they were treating it kind of like a buffet, right? And like, I'm just going to take a little bit of everything and practice a little bit of everything so I can get it all covered. I have my bases covered in case I don't get it right. That's how they were approaching life. And Paul was talking to them. And what, they, what we call that is a word called syncretism. Syncretism. It's, it's a mixture of gods, a mixture of priorities. It's, a, it's this idea of just trying to make sure we have all our bases covered. And it's, it was a dangerous thing. It was a dangerous thing in that time, and it's still a dangerous thing now. Now, some of us, most of us, I would guess, in the room, we're not necessarily guilty of, like, worshiping Greek gods and goddesses, right? I hope not. I was expecting a little bit more of a response from that. Now I'm a little worried. Um, no, I'm just kidding. But we're not, we're not necessarily that. And maybe none of us would have idols that we've created that we bow down and worship at our houses, right? Or do we? Um, um, you know, we don't have those things. Or most of us aren't practicing. Like we don't, come, we don't go to synagogue on Saturday and then come to church on Sunday, to, you know, just to get our bases covered. Most of us aren't doing those things. But there is a syncretism that I think is prevalent in our culture today. A couple of uh, theologians and sociologists came up with it a few years back. And what they ended up calling it after asking teenagers because teenagers always know what they're talking about. Um, they asking teenagers, no, this is important, all jokes aside, what was the most important thing about following Jesus? How did they define the Christian faith? They wanted to see how they were receiving it from the churches that they went to. And what they realized was that pure Orthodox Christianity wasn't what kids were seeing. What they were actually living out was, a, was something that they called moralistic therapeutic deism. That's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Moralistic, therapeutic deism. And basically, it went like this. It basically, it went like this. 
that God exists and he created and ordered the world and he watches over human life on earth. He's not a personal God. He's not a father, but he's, he's a God. He's, you know, it's a deism. It's, that's what deism is. We recognize there's, there's this higher power, this higher authority. And, and it goes on that that higher authority, he wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and most world's religions. So once again, like, this is a syncretism thing because, you know, some, we're not the only religion that says we should be nice to one another. We, you want to be a good person. God wants us to be fair. That's moralistic. You know, it gives us good morals, makes us good people. I've actually heard people say to me, like, once I had kids, I came back to church because I want my child to be a good person, right? Okay, third thing. The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Now, now keep in mind, these are answers that were that within the last 10 years were given from teenagers who were reporting what they understood from their evangelical churches to be Christianity. You with me? Okay? So there's the therapeutic part. God just wants us to be happy. God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when he's needed to resolve a problem. We just put him in a box, God in a box, put him up on the shelf, and like, I'm going to do whatever I need to do, I'm going to be a good person, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to do that's going to make me happy, oh, but you know what, when things go wrong, I'm going to grab him, because then, then that's when I need him, right? And finally, the good people go to heaven when they die. Moralistic, therapeutic deism. Be a good person, and you'll go to, you, know, it's, it, you want to be a good person. And, and this has left culture, a lot of culture, the culture that we live in right now, saying, if this is what it means to follow God, if this is what it means to follow Jesus, well, I can be a good person. Why do I need to take my kids to church? I can be a good person and teach them how to be a good person without that. And yeah, maybe there's a God, but if he's an impersonal God, if he's not involved in life, then, you know, maybe, maybe their God is fine, and this God is fine, and, you know, who, whichever God you want to worship, that's fine, you know, whatever's good for you, as long as you're happy, and as long as you're nice, right? And we live in a culture where moralistic, therapeutic deism has replaced Christianity, because there's nowhere in there about sin. There's nowhere in there about uh, holiness, about a holy God. There's nowhere in there about sinners repenting of their sins and receiving the grace from God who, who son paid the price for our sins so that we could be redeemed and live with him forever, right? There's nowhere in there about that true faith has works, right? There's, it's not in there. And we have, to, we have to be careful because if we choose moralistic therapeutic deism as our syncretistic way of worshiping, then it becomes an add-on that we can mix in with all the other things that we worship for enough. And before you know it, we've lost what it means to follow Jesus. So just because this letter was written thousands of years ago to a church that in a place we've never been doesn't mean that Paul's message to us this morning isn't still relevant. And it is. And so what did Jesus, or what did Paul do? How did Paul say the solution to this was? The only way to get out of this syncretistic mixing of everything was to elevate the main thing. And that was Jesus. Who is Jesus and why does it matter? That's where we read this morning. In my Bible, it tells us that this section of the letter is, is, he, is given a heading by biblical scholars, the preeminence of Christ. 
They want to elevate who Jesus is. If you've ever wondered who Jesus is, Paul says that's the key of making sure you follow him. That's the key of finding enough. That's the key of always seeking him as the place for enough. So are you ready? We're going to look at what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians 15 to 20. He says this first. He says, he, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Folks, there isn't an Old Testament God, and a New Testament God. That's not how the Bible works. He says that Jesus is God in a bod. You with me? That when, if you want to know who God is, if you want to know his nature, if you want to know if God was to walk into the room and communicate with you, if God was to walk into the room or walk into your workplace or walk into the, the place where you go for food, the place that you go to get gas, if you were to see God in that place, what would it look like? It would look like Jesus. He is the image, the exact image of the invisible God. Yes, you can't see God, but let me give you an illustration. It's pretty, let me give you a simple illustration. Imagine sitting down in a, on a couch and you look down the hallway and there's somebody in the other room. And even though you're looking down the hallway, you can't see them in the other room. But if you look at the mirror that's hanging on the hallway, you can see them in the other room. You with me? The image that you see in the mirror, that's Jesus. You may not be able to see God, but you can see Jesus. And guess what? Jesus gives you an exact picture of who God is. You want to know who God is? He's the God that we see in Jesus Christ. And not only that, he's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn. Now, what does that mean? What it does not mean is that Jesus was the first thing created by God. That's That's called the Arian heresy, just so you know. Okay? The church dealt with that a long time ago. In fact, this isn't even planned. This is for free. Um, St. Nick, like the real St. Nick, you know what I'm talking about, the real St. Nick? St. Nicholas punched Arian in the face about this. Yeah, I think that's just a cool story. Anyway, um, (laughs) that gives you a whole different picture of St. Nicholas, doesn't it? Right? But that was argued about in 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 the first century, actually, I think maybe in the fourth century, that, that God did not create Jesus. Jesus has always been. He is co-eternal with the Father, right? That's who he is. If you want to know what that looks like, read the Gospel of John chapter 1. He's always been there. He's the firstborn, which means that he was before everything. And he, created, he, was, he existed before creation, and all things were created through him. And this word, this firstborn word, it actually only appears eight times in the New Testament. Eight times is word firstborn. And the word firstborn, in, out of those eight times, six times refers to a person. And all six times, it refers to Jesus. This is an important part of who Jesus is. He is the firstborn. And it doesn't mean first created. It means like a firstborn child. Because in the culture that Paul's writing to, the firstborn son would have received everything from the father. They would have been the first of the household. They would have been preeminent in the house. All things would have come to the son if the father wasn't around. All things were through him. And that's where we're going to hear. You're going to hear. Now listen as we read this or as we, we walk through this. Over and over again, Paul wants to drive home this firstbornness of Jesus by using the phrase, all things. For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created. So all things were created by him. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. Don't lose sight of this. Just don't uh, listen to this. All things were created through him and all things were created for him. 
That's who Jesus is. That's how important he is. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. It doesn't get any better than this. You want to know who Jesus is. You want to know why you need to follow Jesus. You need to know why he's an important thing. You want to know why people like me and the people sitting around you, if you don't believe in him, have placed all of their hope in him. It's because everything, visible, invisible, heaven, earth, thrones, dominions, authorities, all things created through him, before all things, in him, all things hold together. And if we truly believe this, all things, that he's first and that all things are through him, then it would make me wonder why we pursue other things. Why we think that we'll find satisfaction in other things, if in him is all things. And just so you know, I checked the Greek, and all means all. I'm not a smart guy, but that's what it means. Like, there's no, he doesn't give us any wiggle room. I don't think Paul could have written it any clearer to us. The Holy Spirit wanted us to know all things. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the first of everything, and everything is in him, and he generated everything. That's who he is, but that's not all. He goes on, he says, he's the head of the body, the church. Yeah, did you know I'm not in charge? I hope you did. That's why, as pastor, all seriousness, that's why the first person I want to make sure that my life, my teaching, my leadership, everything is in line with is him. And I'll say this as gently as I can. He comes before you and your preferences. Because one day I'm going to have to stand before him and answer for that. He's in charge. This is his church. We don't have him. He has us. And if we put him first, we would live for him and we would operate for him. He's the beginning. He's the beginning of everything. And he's the firstborn from the dead. Now that's just a weird phrase. Isn't it? Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Why do you believe in Jesus? Because he's firstborn of the dead. Try that this week in your, in your workplace. People are like, what? What are you talking about? See, what Paul's saying, maybe basically to re- retranslate that maybe better would be, he's the first to be reborn from the dead. He's the first to come back from the dead. He's the beginning of the new creation, the beginning of the new covenant. He's the new Adam. When he was stretched out on the cross and he died for you and he went into a tomb and he rose again, though he has raised others from the dead, at that time when Jesus rose from the dead, defeated death, defeated sin, he was the firstborn of something new. That's why we can sing as we did this morning, death, where is your sting? It's been defeated. Forever he's glorified because he was born from the dead. And if you have faith in him, this is the reason why we believe we will have eternal life in him. Because he's the first one who defeated death. And all of us who have faith in him, this is basic stuff, folks. But all of us who put our faith in him, we inherit from him. He imputes to us the ability to not die. It's because we're in him, and he's the firstborn from the dead. Therefore, how do we have eternal life? It's because Jesus is firstborn from the dead. You with me? You understand this? This is what he's saying. So not only, 
Not only is Jesus first place in everything, not only is he the exact image of God, not only is he supreme over all creation, not only did he begin creation, not only is all creation in him, not only is he over all creation, he also is the head over every ruler, every authority, every power. Not only did he exist before everything, but he was the first one to be born from the dead so that you could have eternal life in him. That's not all, though. There's more. Yeah. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's the only person, listen, he's the only person in the history of the world to wear skin that had all of the enough that we all want. He's the first person, the only person to ever walk on earth in skin that had no lack. That's who he is. All the fullness, once again, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. It pleased God. God willed it that he would live in him. And he had to will that all all his fullness would live in him. That's part of the salvation story. Because here's the reality. You and I will never be enough. You and I will never be good enough. You and I will never be firstborn of anything. You and I will never actually be over all things. You and I will never create anything that will last forever. You and I will never be able to be enough on our own. And so God looked down upon the world and he looked at us and he looked at people who would be distracted by all of these things. And yes, they're important, but we were distracted by all these things and all these things we carry around ourselves and we seek them to be enough so that they would fulfill us that they would satisfy our longings so that we would have purpose and that we would have a plan for our days. And he looked down on us and he realized that without him stepping in, that the distraction of all these things would never lead us to actually finding enough. Instead, what they would do, is they would lead us to a place where eventually our pursuit of them would bring us to our own destruction. And so he did something. He said, I'm going to put all my fullness into one of them and I'm going to come down to them and I'm going to rescue them. And on the cross, I'm going to take every single lack of the entire world on myself so that on the other side that anyone who would believe in what I did then would never know what lack means as long as they find enough in me. That's what he said. All the fullness of God, all of it is in him. And if we're not pursuing him and we think we're going to find satisfaction in something else, if we're never going to feel enough, we're not. And all the fullness that it pleased God to do this. Why? Because what I just said, because through him, through Jesus, God wanted to reconcile all things on heaven and earth by making peace on the cross. This word reconcile is a really cool word. In the, in the Greek, it's uh, apokataliso. Okay? It's a really cool word, like I said. And here's what it means. It means to take something and transition it to something else that's completely different. To take something that's one thing and transition it to something else that's completely different. What did God do? What was he pleased to do? What did he want to do? Through this one who was before everything, who was first in everything, he said, I am gonna take all things and I'm going to take it from broken. I'm going to take it from sin. 
I'm going to take it from darkness. I'm going to take it from lacking. I'm going to take it, and I'm going to take it from you and I being enemies, and I'm going to transfer it into something that's completely different. I'm going to take you and me and all the world who puts their faith in Jesus from from being enemies to God on a one-way trip towards destruction, and I am going to call them sons and daughters. That's what he did. And I promise you, your house, your job, your retirement, your health care, it's never going to do that. It's never going to do that. Your hope isn't in philosophies. Your hope isn't in higher learning. Your hope isn't in a better Facebook feed. Or your hope isn't in having the best Snapchat of the week. Youth, it's not going to happen. It's only going to happen when you put him first. It's only going to happen that time. It's the only way you're going to transfer. Because this is what I want you to see this morning. Putting Jesus first makes you never enough more than enough. That's what Paul says. Putting Jesus first makes you never enough more than enough. And if we're going to grow as Christians, this has to be something we own. I shared with you last week my burden, and I don't know what Holy Spirit's doing this to me, and I'm still trying to work it out. I'm a work in progress, you know what I'm saying? But he is burdening me like I haven't felt ever before in my life for the fact that the church needs to wake up to a hunger for Jesus Christ like they've never had. And as we look at the world and we look at the changes in culture, and as a father, I'm terrified of the culture and of the morality and of the the government that my kids are going to have 10 years from now. I have a choice. I can either put that in my bag and worry about if it's going to be good enough for them, or I'm going to do what Paul seems to be doing to the church in Colossae and what the Holy Spirit seems to be doing to me, saying the only thing that I need to worry about is to have a hunger for Jesus more than I've ever had, because the only way that God is going to bring about renewal in his church, the only way this church is going to experience renewal, the only way that this community is going to experience renewal is when the people of God who supposedly know this truth actually are moved from the inside out to a passion and a hunger for Jesus Christ like they've never had before. And the only way that will happen, folks, is if we actually conform our lives to what his word says, which is that he is first in everything and that he is the only place we will ever find anything. It's got to happen. And it's not going to happen with the church down the road. It needs to start in us, and it needs to start in me, and it needs to start in you, because God is not finished. He's not finished in this world. In fact, I believe he's getting started, and he wants to see us move. And I shared with you a few weeks ago, or maybe it was last week, I'm tired of hearing about it happen in other places. I'm tired of reading about how it happened in other ages. I want it to happen in my life. I want it to happen here, and I want it to happen in me. And the only way it's going to happen is me, in me is if I get this right and I put him first and I hunger and thirst for him and if I truly believe he's first in everything and that everything that seems to give me worry and everything that gives me a nightless sleeps and everything that I seem to wake up in the morning on my list that I think I have to do until I realize that I have to arrange it properly and put him first in all things will I start to get it right. 
There's no other way to pack the car. There's no other way to pack the bag. There's no other way for me to live my life. Because here's the thing. It's very clear by looking at Jesus, that's how I'll discover who God is. That's how I'll discover who I am. (laughs) It's very clear too. Jesus holds together the world. The world before him was created through him, and the new world that started with him is created through him. He's everything. It's very clear to me from looking at what Paul wrote this morning that the blueprint for my life and the genuine humanness, the the genuine life, the general genuine human flourishing, the genuine man that God wants me to be, all of it will only be found in him. Nowhere else. And it's very clear to me that finding enough in anything else is setting myself up for second best. That's what I see. And it's hard, is it? Isn't it hard? I mean, I don't stand up here a perfect man. If, if, if you're new here, the, other, the rest of the people have already figured this out. I don't. And these things in here are real. Our houses, our workplaces, our kids, our health care, our, our paychecks, our checking and savings account, our hopes and dreams, they're all real. The relational problems that we have, they're real. But the reality is we'll never experience overflowing enough unless we put him first. Because putting him first makes you're never enough more than enough. And if he's not enough, then you'll never actually experience enough. Did you catch that? Now, what does this look like for you and for me? A couple examples I have. Money. Well, that's something we worry about whether we have enough of, isn't it? That means that I have to realize that Jesus has to be first with my finances. That means I have to put him first in the place of my finances because I have to believe if all things are for him, that putting him first with my finances actually will lead to me experiencing fullness in him. That means that my definition of what is enough money will change by the way that he shapes my heart and mind as I put my finances first in him. You with me? That means as I think about my relationships, my love life, my, my, my relationships with my kids, relationship with my wife, my relationship with human beings, that I have to put my relationship with Jesus first because the only way I'm going to be able to love people is if I love him with all my heart. It's funny, he talked about that a lot. That looks like rather than worrying about my house and whether I have the next, the next best cabinets and whether I have the next best countertops and the next best floors and I have the best house in the, in the neighborhood or my yard is best, best, best kept and, you know, I got the guy coming to fertilize it so that I have the greenest grass on the block. Rather than worry about my house, it means putting him first in my home. So that he's first in priority with my children and with my spouse. And that that is what's first in my life. Rather than worrying about promotions, rather than worrying about work, rather than worrying about my jerk boss. I don't have one anymore, but I have. Um, Rather than worrying about all of those things, I put into practice what Paul says later in Colossians chapter 3. That whatever I do or say, I do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is first. And if I'm not working in a place where I want to work, that I put him first in that so his glory would shine through me. Therefore, at one point or another, God will move me to a place that matches my, my gifts, my talents, and my heart. But in no matter what, if he's first, he's working through me in that workplace, whether it is to glorify him through the way I work or glorify him by my relationships with my coworkers. But it makes putting him first 
with our time. It means saying, is Jesus first in my calendar? Does my calendar look like the calendar of somebody who put Jesus first? Or does my life look like someone who puts the calendar first? You with me? That's what it looks like with my health. It says worrying about my health, putting this in the first thing in my mind, making it the first part of every part of my prayer, or I put Jesus first and recognize that this body, though it is wasting away, has been secured through the promise of his death and resurrection. So though this this earthly tent may be wasting away, I have an eternal body awaiting for me that was sealed 2,000 years ago by the one who is, by the way, first in everything. And therefore, though it wastes away, I know his promises are renewed every morning. You with me? These are just some examples of saying, do we really believe that Paul is saying the truth or is it a nice verse to read? Jesus is calling us folks to choose him, to choose him first and all the other things will be given to you as well. He says that in Matthew chapter six, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek him first because he's more than enough. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. And for those of us here this morning, we would admit, some of us have been walking with you a long time, and and this isn't new. This idea, Lord, of you being first and you needing to be first isn't new, but it's hard. It's hard because life Life doesn't make it easy sometimes. Our workplaces, our checkings, our savings accounts, our relationships with other people, the problems we're facing that no one knows about, they quickly consume us and push you out. And Lord, if if we're honest, it's easy for us to to moralize and therapeutize our relationship with you, where we go to you when we need to feel better, and because we follow you, we feel like we need to act better. And so, Lord, we repent from that and realize that that's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. We repent from that, and Lord, we ask that you would help us place you first in everything. Because, Lord, we know from looking at your word that you're already first in everything, And it's not about us making you there. It's about us recognizing you're there and we need to surrender to you there. Lord, for those of us in this room right now that feel like there's some place in our life that we need to stop making you second and need to put you first, I would ask you by your Holy Spirit that you would give us the strength to do that this week. Father, we love you. We love you. Help us love you more. Help us place you first. Give this church and each person in this seats, each person under the sound of my voice, whether it's this morning or listening online later this week, give us the passion for you like we've never had before. Father, give your church a hunger to know you more, not to know more about you, but to know you so that our love for you, our passion for you would be so contagious that you would bring about what you want to bring about in this world through us, through your church in Palmyra, in Anvil, in Lebanon County. 
Lord, help us to stop just doing church and help us pursue Jesus with all that we are. To you be the glory and honor forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen.
interesting why, why sing a song that says that over and over and over again I think it's because sometimes we forget like this challenge is like good news right like that's what the gospel says like this is good news yeah it challenges us yes is it hard yes but it's good news it's the promise that he who is above all things who is first if you would make him first will bring good maybe not in the way you define it not in the way you see it right away, but it's, the promise is good. And we have a good news to share with each other when we're struggling. We have the ability as a church, that's why you have to be part of a local congregation, to speak that good news to one another, to remind one another it's good news. We have the ability to go in the world this week and actually carry with us a message that is countercultural, that is good all the time. That's a good thing. That's a really good thing. Remember, it's not that we can't have priorities about it. It's about who is preeminent, who's first, and how do we arrange those priorities. You ready to live this? God bless you all. I can't wait for next week. Hopefully I'll see you this week, though. God bless you. See you then. Bye-bye.